0: Or the 99%. I am Jim, the sound guy, and I'm joined
1: by Mark Anderlich today, as always. Yeah, how are you doing, Jim? And we're
0: broadcasting from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. We're recording the show from the comfort of our own homes. Um... In one case, Mark's case is he in the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. I, instead of in the ancestral homeland of the Puyallup and Lummi people, in northwestern Washington State.
1: All right, that's good. And uh, we hope you are holding up and doing your part by staying at home as best you can and by wearing masks when you do go out into public, and by frequent washing of your hands. The show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show, as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And we want to give old Mick a shout-out, as he is at home, too. Hey, Mick.
0: Yes, Mick. Wish you could be on the show with us. Take care of yourself, and Merry Christmas to you. (laughs) So, our word of the week is freedom. Uh, What an important but loaded word. It gets used often enough. But doesn't it seem to have different meanings depending on who is saying it? Um, Actually, diametrically opposite meanings from what I hear
1: and see lately. In some cases, absolutely, Jim. Um, and there are several uses of the word freedom. Um, for this show, we'll take up two of the most important varieties of freedom, that is political and economic freedom. But first, let's look at the word's origin. According to Etym Online, etymologyonline.com, uh, <laughs> um, freedom is from the Old English freodom, meaning power of self-determination, State of free will, emancipation from slavery, deliverance. The meaning exempt from uh, the meaning uh, quote exempt from arbitrary or despotic control civil liberty uh, is uh, has its origins in the late fourteenth century, and the meaning quote possession of a particular privilege is from the fifteen seventies.
0: seventy would be like Reformation territory
1: yeah I think so and, and they had maybe different conception worldview and conception of what freedom is <laughs> um, so yeah and of course they're all positive meanings like who is openly against freedom um, but uh, but now to the two uses of the word freedom first is the political use uh, according to our collective wisdom on Wikipedia, uh, quote, in political discourse, political freedom is often associated with liberty and autonomy in the sense of giving oneself their own laws and with having rights and civil liberties with which to ex- exercise them without undue interference from the state. Frequent discussion, frequent uh, start over, frequently discussed kinds of political freedom Include freedom of assembly, freedom of association, freedom of choice, and freedom of speech. End quote. Yeah, the four freedoms. There you go. In, in sort, the of, US, sort of, sort <laughs> oh, of. Oh, that's it's sort of. We'll get to those four freedoms that you mean, you mean later on, but yeah. It, it, okay. Absolutely, Jim, and I like a scoop of vanilla on mine. Um, but um, but freedom has more dimensions than just our political system um, or freedom from the from state interference. Right? Uh, again, Wiki, again, Wikipedia: economic freedom or economic liberty is the ability of people of a society to take economic actions. This is a term used in economic and policy debates as well as in the philosophy of economics. One approach to economic freedom comes from the liberal tradition emphasizing free markets, free trade, and private property under free enterprise. So just as a side note, people often get confused about uh, the term liberal or neoliberal uh, capitalism. And this is an older sense of the word, not meaning from slightly left of the center of the political spectrum, but uh, basically liberty and economic uh, activity. Um, And so, in emphasizing free markets, free trade, and private property uh, under free enterprise. A lot of freedoms in there, right? Um, Another approach to economic freedom extends the welfare economic study of individual choice with greater economic freedom coming from a larger set of possible choices other conceptions of economic freedom include freedom from want there you go the from the four freedoms and the, yeah. and the freedom to engage in collective bargaining yeah oh, i apologize for getting my freedoms confused that's <laughs> yeah. the topic of the day that is that is quite I'm understandable Jim. Yeah. Yeah, so, it's quite understandable me, yeah. <laughs> so the, Yes. <laughs> so the word
0: freedom takes on several shades of meaning in the economic sense.
1: Yes, there are several. We will look at the principal ones. So, first, according to Wikipedia, um, the liberal free market viewpoint defines economic liberty as the freedom to produce, trade, and consume any goods and services acquired without the use of force, fraud, or theft. This is embodied in the rule of law, property rights, and freedom of contract, and characterized by external and internal openness of the markets, the protection of property rights, and freedom of economic initiative. End quote. Uh, this is the classical or classic neoliberal capitalist view. Is that it? Yeah, absolutely. This is this is uh, what is held by you know the ruling class in this country as economic freedom. And it should be familiar to most people. People have heard these words, maybe not really understood them, but these words get, you know, repeated often. Um, But there are limitations to how this definition of economic freedom actually provides for real freedom. Here's a bit from Wikipedia. Quote, The differences between alternative views of economic freedom have been expressed in terms of Isaiah Berlin's distinction between positive freedom and negative freedom. Classic liberals, remember liberals, neoliberalism, classic liberals, classic liberals favor a focus on negative freedom, as did Berlin himself, uh, which means uh, freedom, freedom, you know, from uh, basically, uh, uh, from state interference into the economics, right? That's pretty much the definition. By contrast, uh, for example, Amartya Sen argues for an understanding of freedom in terms of capabilities to pursue a range of goals, which is a positive uh, view of economic freedom. One measure which attempts to assess freedom in the positive sense is Gooden, Rice, Parpo, and Erickson. I don't know who they are. But anyway, but what they, their measure of discretionary time, which is an estimate of how much time people have at their disposal during which they are free to choose the activities in which they participate after taking into account the time they need to spend acquiring the necessities of life. The ability to have the time to do what you want after securing the basic necessities. Yes. And a, a, and yet a more developed idea of positive economic freedom from U.S. history, here you go, Jim, is, is also uh, from Wikipedia. Franklin D. Roosevelt included freedom from want in his For Freedoms speech. Roosevelt stated that freedom from want translated into world terms means economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. Uh, In terms of U.S. policy, Roosevelt's New Deal included economic freedoms such as freedom of trade union organization as well as a wide range of policies of government intervention and redistributive taxation aimed at promoting freedom from want. Internationally, Roosevelt favored the policies associated with the Bretton Woods Agreement, which fixed exchange rates and established international economic institutions such as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And I might add um, why that's really important, the Wikipedia article really doesn't do it justice, but what Roosevelt actually showed and, and some other governments at the time during the Great Depression was that we were not necessarily totally at, uh, you know, helpless at the whims of the capitalist markets, right? The the uh, the you know the depressions and the and the booms and the busts that happen with uh, under a capitalist economy, and and that uh, you, that he created. You know, he basically uh, uh, kind of you know for good created uh, fiat money, uh, and you know which is issued by the Federal Reserve Bank and can spend massive amounts of that money created by the government in order to help support people, which actually made, for instance, like the CARES Act possible in March. So that's, uh, that's something that, that you know, Roosevelt's administration really pioneered.- <laughs>
0: and join organizations of their own choosing as an integral part of a free and open society?
1: It is, but we, and um, uh, in, in that was uh, actually established as um, uh, essential to creating and maintaining economic freedom uh, through the Philadelphia Declaration, which I had really never heard of before, um, which is enshrined in the Constitution of the Internet <coughs> Internet. Elton John sing about the Philadelphia freedom. (laughs) Yeah, you know he. That's probably right. You know he's probably singing about the, the the freedom come that comes from uh, workers' organizations. Um, But anyway, it's enshrined in the Constitution of the International Labor Organization, which of course was formed right after World War II, and it states in that Constitution that all human beings, irrespective of race, creed, or sex have the right to pursue both their material well-being and their spiritual development in conditions of freedom and dignity, of economic security, and equal opportunity. The International Labor Organization further states that, quote, the right of workers and employers to form and join organizations of their own choosing is an integral part of a free and open society, end quote. yeah and and i would say that they they uh have um many things in common one thing that they certainly have in common is that uh which the you know the liberal view of economics uh, economic freedom or the neoliberal view and today the neoliberal see government involvement in the economy is antithetical to freedom however all the rest of these positive economic freedoms such as Roosevelt in his Four Freedoms, that uh, government involvement in the economy is essential to protecting economic freedom. Um, and probably the best one of the lot, in my opinion, is, uh, is this. The socialist view of economic freedom conceives of freedom as a concrete situation as opposed to an abstract or moral concept. This view of freedom is closely related to the socialist view of human creativity and the importance ascribed to creative freedom. Socialists view creativity as an essential aspect of human nature, thus defining freedom as a situation or state of being where individuals are able to express their creativity unhindered by constraints of both material scarcity, which means not having enough money or food or something like that, and coercive social institutions, which are many. Marxists stress the importance of freeing the individual from what they view as coercive, exploitative, and alienating social relationships of forms of production, right, which we covered in earlier shows, um, that, that they are compelled to partake in, as well as the importance of economic development as providing the material basis for the existence of a state of society where there are enough resources to allow for each individual to pursue his or her genuine creative interests, end quote. That's even poetic.
0: This matches up with many religious teachings about becoming a fully human as a reflection of God.
1: That's right. And, uh, and, and there's not much poetry or godliness in neoliberalism, as far as I can tell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in
0: fact, the last, (laughs) what we talked about for the last minute or two is is so uh, rife with misunderstandings and misconceptions. (sighs) Ah, Wonderful topic to be talking about today.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, But there are others who claim to be acting in the name of freedom, but are really being irresponsible.
1: To bring it into the modern era, anti vaxxers come to mind. Mm-hmm. So do
0: some who refuse to wear masks during the pandemic.
1: <sighs> yeah, and this is from the July 31st U.S. edition of theconversation.com. Um, why do masks mandate, mask mandates elicit such anger? Setting aside the conspiracy theories and disinformation that seem to pervade these protests, The participants are joined by a fierce attachment to individual liberty, or freedom, right? They believe mask mandates sacrifice individual liberty to a collectivist notion uh, of a greater good. It is easy to understand why. Mask mandates use the coercive power of the state to require a person to do something that they would otherwise not choose to do. And it seems to follow that a person's liberty is compromised by such interference. The conception of "quote freedom as non-interference," end quote, that underpins the anti-mask movement, which has its parallel in the liberal economic sense too, right? Um, oh, does it ever? <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> <at one point. laughs> yeah, that that conception of freedom as non-interference um, has the virtue of simplicity, right? It's very easy to 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 say and to understand. It allows us to apply an easy metric to test our freedom. If our choices are interfered with, then we are less free. But if this is correct, it is unclear why wearing a mask is so troubling given, given the widespread, quote, interference in our other choices. Surely the requirements that you have to cover any part of your body is a far graver violation of individual liberty Than being compelled to wear a small face covering during a pandemic. It may be that the anti-mask movement is the spear tip of a global militant nudism trend, but that doesn't seem particularly plausible. Um, So uh, what is freedom? Or desirable. (laughs) Yeah, or desirable, maybe. Uh, uh, The problem is that the idea of liberty as non-interference often runs up against common sense. For example, most people do not feel savagely oppressed by having to drive on one side of the road, by bans on public nudity, or by laws against murder. They interfere with our choices, but they don't seem to make us less free. Maybe we need a different formulation of freedom. Uh, And this author posits this. You are free when you are protected not against simple interference, but against arbitrary interference. is is one way of putting it, right? As philosopher uh, Philip Pettit notes, this makes liberty a more complex idea, but one better suited to our social reality. It is more vulnerable because it only requires the potential for interference to be compromised, but it also makes it more robust because if the interference is not arbitrary, then it is not a violation of liberty, even if our actions are constrained. The anti-maskers are right that the state ought to be resisted when it tries to dominate its citizens and violate their basic rights. But instead of worrying about masks, they ought to be more concerned with instances of unidentifiable government agents firing tear gas into peaceful demonstrators or detaining people for an indeterminate amount of time under the nebulous mandate of protecting monuments or national security. These are the things that turn citizens into slaves. End quote. Yeah.
0: And turning slaves into citizens has, has been a challenge in this hemisphere for centuries.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, too, you know, I'm not sure I completely think that's a complete argument, um, you know, to wear a mask. It's kind of interesting. But I also think you know a, a better one that i've heard is that you know your freedom to punch me at the no, in the nose uh, you know it it begins at your fist and ends at my nose right it's not something that uh you, you 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 know once you go past that or even you know once even if you threaten to punch me in the nose um then uh that is you know you, you know, you could be free to do that, but that violates my freedom. And so, therefore, you know, mask, it's even a, a better example that um, I see people who don't wear masks as not, you know, given a flying F, you know, for me or for other people around them. They feel like, oh, yeah, this is freedom we're talking about. Right, right. It, it, because they're not protecting others around them. And um, and so okay, well, maybe that's a that's that's sure kind of a depraved and 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 demeaned form of freedom, in in my opinion. Agreed.
0: Well, as usual, lots of news to cover from this week, and oh, what a week it was! What's first in our current news, Mark?
1: Yeah. Well. Um, you know, once again, it's the coronavirus, right? Surprise, surprise. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> in the uh, U.S. overall, the number of new daily COVID-19 cases is setting records every day and is rapidly rising to a rate of, on Friday, over 217,000 cases, new cases a day. That's a quarter of a million people a day, just about. I know. It's astounding.
0: Um, that's a, that's. A to healthy-sized city in this country.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: um, you know, there are cities that have NFL teams <laughs> that that have smaller populations
1: mm-hmm. than that. I can only think of one, and that's Green Bay, right? Um, and maybe don't, don't say that word. I'm a Bears fan. Okay, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, but that's okay. You know, i you have the freedom <laughs> to
0: like whatever team you do
1: in the NFC Central you want. That's right. North. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, so, um, you know, it's it, it's fair to say that the coronavirus is wildly out of control in the U.S. Um, and and for those of you who believe that we need to risk COVID infection to save the economy, well, I got something to say to you. The economy will not recover until people feel safe enough from the coronavirus and and have enough money in their pocket to spend into the economy. The U.S. is still the leader in the world of total numbers of confirmed cases and deaths. In many countries, the rate curve is low or going down, including India. Uh, The European Union and in Brazil, the rates are beginning to rise again. Okay, Um, So, yeah, who knows why? I mean... um, The World Health Organization has has advised governments that before reopening the economy, rates of positivity in testing should remain at 5% or lower for at least 14 days, which means that out of all tests conducted, how many came back positive for COVID-19 should be 5% or less for two weeks. Montana, in the past two weeks, has not met the goal However, it has a decreasing positivity rate of 11 percent, uh, so it's twice as high as it should be. But it's it's coming down. Uh, some of the highest positivity rates in the nation are in Idaho at 46 percent and South Dakota at 42 percent, with North Dakota dropping to six percent and Wyoming to 10 percent. And we are. Well, that's encouraging. North Dakota yeah. was was you know pandemic pandemonium central yeah yeah until, until just now right so no, that's a good thing and so it's pretty much going down in north dakota wyoming and montana is going down not so much in idaho and south dakota so yeah. um anyway um uh, so this is the worst of the pandemic still now in montana uh as of friday <clears throat> montana has reported 275 hospitalizations from COVID-19, a big decrease from, of 97 hospitalizations from last week. This is definitely an improvement, but it is still continuing to put stress on weary staff and filling up ICU beds and stretching medical resources in the state to its limit. This is still a grave concern right now.
0: again. Shouldn't Governor Bullock be, be, be looking or considering more statewide closures and limitations?
1: Yeah, I think so. And But by most accounts, he has so far handled the pandemic well for the state, except as recent, recently reported for the Rasha outbreaks in the Montana state prison system. Um, he still did not clo- reclose the economy despite record outbreaks in the state this starting this fall. Thanks to Congress and their inaction, we still don't have enough money in the economy through stimulus checks, compounding the problems and trying to control the pandemic. Congress's inaction has put states in a very tough position, either close down the economy to control the COVID, but severely reducing people's income, or leave the economy partially open to allow people more economic security, but to allow the pandemic to infect and kill more people than otherwise would be the case. That's a sophie's choice. No matter what you choose, it creates harm. Yep. Yep, that's right. And these COVID-19 figures are according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website and the state of Montana. Uh, we are certainly nowhere done with this virus yet, despite having vaccines, uh, which we will get to, as it is still at large in the U.S. and spreading at over 312,000 deaths. Uh, The U.S. is still the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. Um, And these rates are going up now, Jim. Um, The U.S. accounted for 19% of all the deaths in the world and for 23% of the confirmed cases. All with still only four percent of the world's population. Yeah, and
0: we were already an outlier and you and um, you know, statistics one oh one would say uh, you know, you return to a baseline in time. And we're we're just getting worse and worse. We're in we're in
1: hyperdrive now. Right. We're we're pulling away from that baseline. All the way to plaid. We're we're pulling away from that baseline, as you said, Jim. That's right. Yeah, three hundred and twelve thousand deaths. It's, it's, uh,
0: it's, yeah, it's almost a um, exponential increase. It's just crazy.
1: Yep. And very disturbing. Yep. Not just disturbing, but as we have said for weeks, this is a grim thing to be exceptional at. Yes. And end quote. yes, and we have also been saying since February and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is beaten it is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks to distance themselves from others and to frequently wash their hands if we are going to beat this pandemic in montana we need to bend the curve even more down this in this manner so our hospitals are not overwhelmed solidarity requires some sacrifice but it is essential for every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much farther from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity through vaccination, and fully reopening the economy. Um,
0: and speaking of vaccines, um, that's a topic for sure. Well, what's the latest,
1: Mark? Well, there are some big warning signs, um, and uh, and there's been recently some published quite a few articles about the safety and efficacy of the the um, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So um, according to a recent piece in STAT, S-T-A-T, which is a leading health science publication and recognized as being above the political fray, uh, from a December 17th article in STAT entitled Did the FDA Understaff Its Review of the Pfizer-BioNTech Vaccine? Um, They say... Uh, is part of a quote out of that article in what is arguably the most important decision the Food and Drug Administration has made this year its emergency authorization of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine which is being administered right now as we speak to health professionals um, the agency apparently assigned only a single reviewer in each of two key scientific disciplines clinical, and statistics, to do the work in three weeks that usually takes months to do. Unlike its counterparts in other countries, the FDA FDA is believed to be the only drug regulator in the world that consistently receives and reviews patient-level data from the clinical trials that underpin drug and vaccine approvals. To perform such rigorous analysis, the FDA typically spends around 10 months. Uh, and a, in a mere six months for applications giving priority review designations such as these vaccines in an effort that involves reviews by experts representing various scientific disciplines, clinical medicine, statistics, pharmacology, chemistry, pharmacovigilance, and more. Given the, ur- given the urgency of the pandemic, The review of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine was conducted far faster than usual. The centerpiece of the analysis was data from the company's 44,000-participant Phase 3 trial. FDA reviewers had just three weeks from November 20th to December 11th to complete their analyses. It was a monumental task, which raises the question, why didn't the FDA devote additional reviewers to it? According to the FDA's review memo, some scientific disciplines, such as pharmacovigilance, had multiple reviewers involved, which is normal. But the two disciplines tasked with examining the clinical trial data and results and the clinical and statistical reviewers were seemingly left to do their work solo. This seems wholly inadequate on at least two levels, First, without additional reviewers, it is hard to comprehend how the work of several months could be squeezed into a matter of 22 days, including Saturdays and Sundays. In-depth review calls for examining patient-level data, a large feat that involves auditing and reviewing individual case records as well as independently rerunning analyses on the raw data." End quote. Yeah,
0: if I remember from last week, the only publicly released information about the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and the other vaccines too, was from corporate press releases.
1: Yep, spot on, Jim. And we quoted Wired Magazine as they pithily put it, quote, unpublished data, no details, no peer review, science by press release. That ain't good, end quote. No, and I, I like the uh, poor grammar for emphasis. <laughs> no, not good at all. Yep. Yeah. And so now we find out that the FDA seriously understaffed its review of that corporate generated data. Do I smell the profit motive at work here? Mm, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm catching that whiff too, Jim. Um, <laughs> the, the FDA is supposed to be the watchdog in the public interest. And they have apparently come far short of that. And there is at least one more concern, that the high frequency of strong adverse reactions to the vaccine meant the study was unblinded to those patients. So if I would stop in mid-quote here, um, having a double-blind test means that um, scientists give some people the vaccine, the real thing that they're trying to test, and then they give others a placebo something that's fake it's just you know it's a harmless substance and and the and the patients aren't supposed to know what they got right in order so that they're not making up you know they're not making things up right so if 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 they if they know they got the vaccine and want to have good results they may sort of downplay some of the bad effects and then uh, if they, if, you know, uh, if they know they got the placebo, they may act in a different way. And that just spoils the whole test. Well, uh, apparently, um, uh, th- this is again from Stat, uh, from, from Stat, the uh, medical science journal. Um, one of us, uh, PD, raised questions about potential unblinding in the trials through the vaccine's side effects as well as about the confounding effects of fever and pain-reducing medications, which participants in the vaccine arm took three to four times more often than those in the placebo arm. Yet the FDA's review show no evidence that any of its scientists investigated either of these issues. And without more scientific staff devoted to the task, it is hard to imagine how they could. So if I just would rephrase... If you got a severe reaction, right? Which apparently quite a number of people got reactions yes. to it, then they know. Oh, well, we got the vaccine, right? Not the placebo, yeah. And that and that spoils the the results. Um, and there must be ways of kind of testing through that and all that. But um, anyway, yeah, and um, hot flash here. Um, <laughs>
0: something just jumped on my screen from the seattle times um the fda has cleared a second coronavirus vaccine produced by moderna and the national institutes of health to be deployed in the united states
1: yeah yep
0: and so the testing is being conducted on those getting the vaccine
1: well it sure seems so this rushed This rush to get the vaccine out that hasn't been thoroughly tested as is is what's normal with the FDA. Um, If you remember from a September 9th report in the American Council on Science and Health newsletter, quote, for vaccines in phase three clinical trials, this final experimental stage requires tens of thousands of people in order to properly assess efficacy and safety. Among other things, such a a large sample size is important for detecting rare but dangerous side effects. Uh, And it is exactly these phase three clinical trials that are being kind of rushed through and not analyzed uh, in the emergency approvals of of not only the Pfizer vaccine, but now the Moderna vaccine.
0: Yeah, so it's, possible that serious side effects may emerge when the vaccines are
1: put into public use? Uh, absolutely. In the rush to reopen the economy through a vaccine, which I think is the fairest way of putting this, um, mm-hmm. we need to be lucky that this is not the case. So, we're, you know, there's, there's a lot of luck involved, bad or good. Uh, The implication from the stat article is that the FDA does not know with any certainty if there are dangerous side effects or if the early vaccines are really all that effective. And back to the motives of big pharma, one need only to refer to the excellently reviewed article uh, called Drug Companies and Doctors, a Story of Corruption by uh, Marsha Ang. Or Angel, um, M.D., published in the January 15th, 2009 issue of the New York Review of Books. She was the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, the gold standard in medical research journals. As explained by a well-regarded doctor of internal medicine, quote, Dr. Angel's article is the Cliff Notes version of a much longer discussion she had about corruption, corporatism, managerialism, profiteering, greed, and deception in the medical profession. Patient care and patient concerns, and indeed patient lives, in her mind, have been absolutely overcome by all of these other things. It is a landmark paper and should be read by anyone who is going to interact with the medical community, which means all of us, I guess, uh, because, alas, this is the way it is now. I view this paper the exact same way I view Eisenhower's, President Eisenhower's speech about the military industrial complex. What she said is exactly true and has only become orders of magnitude worse since 2009. End quote. These remarks were published in the December 14th edition of the blog Naked Capitalism. The doctor concluded, quote, Unfortunately, this study from Pfizer in the latest New England Journal of Medicine, and indeed this whole vaccine rollout, are case studies in the pathology angle described. There are more red flags in this paper and related events than present on any May day in downtown Beijing. Yet all anyone hears from our media, our medical elites, and our politicians are loud hosannas in complete unquestioning acceptance of this new technique which is uh uh in um uh, an rdna technique right um he goes he goes on length about this uh well he he says i'll just finish his quote he says and lately ridicule in spite for anyone who dares to raise questions which is why he published this anonymously and what the new what the new technique is what he was going on about was um was an RNA, so having a vaccine um, that gloms on to the RNA of of cells, and not and not the usual kind of vaccine. There has never been a vaccine based on this rDNA uh, type of, of of And I don't understand what that means, but <laughs> um, but there's never been uh, any kind of uh, vaccine that is based on this method. That's the new method he's talking about. And that's, and, so, yeah. and so it's not even like a normal vaccine in some ways that, you know, it's just a different variation of a normal vaccine. This is a brand new procedure and as yet untested. So he, he was raising some very serious questions here.
0: Yeah, you know, both of us, Mark, can be excused for not knowing What's going on because you know, in the decades since we got our primary education, there has been a world change, a sea change, and uh, in you know, biology and understanding at the you know, molecular level. So, we can just wash our hands of it,
1: yeah. <laughs> so, lots of Yeah, exactly. And we said earlier this summer when we were covering this issue uh, that safe and effective vaccinations would only be widely available next summer at the earliest. Um, and it looks like that's holding true. And that's because of the final phase three testing regimen, right? That it Not only is, does it take tens of thousands of people, but it takes time for that to go through. Apparently with the Pfizer vaccine, they had 44,000 people but not the length of time to see like, right. where serious side effects were developed. Or, you know, even efficacy, right? Maybe maybe it's effective for a month and then it goes away. They, they don't know. So it's a giant experiment. Um, so all of the prevention that you mentioned, Jim, is still extremely important. Yeah, and you don't have to be clairvoyant
0: to understand... They're not driven by ingenuity or imagination, but by a calendar. You know, the testing is going to have a, an easy to easily quantified amount of time, and that's just the way it is. I um, yep. back at Ford, <laughs> where I was in a design capacity, the phrase was. Um, You know, Dearborn is looking for nine pregnant women so they can have a baby in
1: one month. (laughs) And it's still true. Uh, You you can't
0: change calendar pages.
1: Hey, well, but the math works out, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, of course, and that's all that matters. Oh,
0: yeah, we could up on that topic. (laughs) Corporate planning based on um, the spreadsheets Bengalis that can can twist numbers around and make a good argument for people who aren't paying attention. Yeah. And speaking of mask wearing, many of the Republicans in the Montana legislature are standing up for freedom by not making mask wearing mandatory in the state capitol during the upcoming legislative
1: session. <laughs> right you are, Jim. And the Missoulian reported on December 18th that the Republican-dominated Legislative Rules Committee refused to make the session all virtual or even to postpone it altogether until herd immunity through vaccination is reached, which is, by the way, the only humane to reach herd immunity, which is important to know as we get further into the story. Um, And the Rules Committee also declined to mandate mask-wearing or distancing. And forget about hand washing. Apparently, even that's too parental and freedom denying. Yeah, I guess so.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, uh, there has been a lot of news since we're on that topic of specific expectations and goals by the uh, current administration to, uh, let, to have faith in herd immunity with
1: no basis in fact yeah. and not even understanding of what they were talking about. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah so well what we'll, did legislators say during the debate? Well, and, <laughs> and, and speaking of... It, yeah, we're going to have some great examples of legislators not knowing what the hell they're talking about. Um <laughs> So um, uh, th- this is from the Helena Independent Record, another Lee Enterprise newspaper, uh, on December 7th when, when the committee actually had the debate. They had the vote uh, this week. Um, so State Representative Derek Skies, who chairs the House Rules Committee and is a Republican from Kalispell, said if employees branded as essential, branded as, branded, I, I kind of like that word, that's uh, kind of yeah, how it feels. Um, <laughs> Is branded? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they got a, you know, there's a McDonald's brand and a, Anyway, um, so uh, if he said if employees branded as essential have gone to work through the pandemic, lawmakers should too. Skis also. Oh, that's so <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, believe you me, it gets a lot worse than that, Jim. It gets a lot worse. Ski's also forwarded the idea of reaching herd immunity, which is the idea that a population is protected from a virus if, without a widespread vaccine, enough people become sick and recover. The World Health Organization says letting COVID 19 spread through populations of any age or health status will lead to unnecessary infections, suffering, and death. Ski's said. Oh, that's that- The WHO that um, the 45th president has said. They don't know what they're doing. We're not having anything to do with them. Right, right. Well, so Skees said, in my mind, this cannot be an entirely virtual session. COVID is on the route to gaining 70% of our population, which is what happens to a virus when it gains herd immunity. Uh, That's so Yeah. He, He added that between that and a vaccine, the novel coronavirus would soon be a problem of the past. Okay, we can only hope. uh, In response, state's Representative Sharon stewart Paragoy, a Democrat from Crow Agency, lives in Bighorn County, which has been hit hard by the virus. This week, the county counted its 50th COVID-19-related death. And if you can imagine, Bighorn County is very small, and it's mostly Indian Reservation, right? It's mostly mostly the Crow Reservation. Um, anyway, uh, S- uh, Stuart Paragoy is native, as are many in her district. Native Americans have been disproportionately harmed by the virus. They make up about 7% of the state's population, but represent 15% of the cases and 27% of the deaths. Uh, Stuart, or Stuart Paragoy said, This is normal, people wearing a face mask, having one point of entry, having the temperatures checked. Ultimately, it's about the safety of our constituents. It's about the people we serve. I tell you right now, I have no stomach to talk about this in the abstract. My community has been hit hard. Lewis and Clark County is a hot spot, and Lewis and Clark County is where Helena resides, where the legislature is going to meet. Um, she continues, if you have not seen or personally seen a family member who cannot talk to a loved one who is fighting for their life in the ICU, then please don't talk about this abstractly. End quote. So in response to that, state senator State Representative, excuse me, Barry Usher, a Republican from Billings, rose after Stuart Paraguay and called her comments emotional and insulting. Yellowstone County, which he represents, is also among the counties most harmed by the pandemic. Usher continued, quote, "...we have kowtowed you all to give you the opportunity to be remote and be safe if you feel you need to be. And you're going to argue about these amendments? It's ridiculous. It's a waste of my afternoon." I could be trying to make my business survive through this. Instead, I'm going to be up here listening to you guys cry, Usher said. Usher also cited a falsehood about mask use, saying masks could co- cause harm to the wearer. He said, think about it. My body has its own mask system. I exhale when what my body doesn't want. When you have a mask on, it holds it in. It holds it in, so you can be... So you can re bring that negative that your body just put out. Usher said. Oh. So, I, he
0: hands down has to get the Jim Imhoff Award for <laughs> scientific misinformation and stupidity.
1: Yeah, yep. Yeah. So uh, and then here's here's more of the science. In this, it's still this uh, article in the Helena Independent Record. Um, The Associated Press earlier this year quoted Sarah Stanley, associate professor of infectious diseases in vaccinology at the University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health, as saying there's no evidence something like what Usher described is true. She also told the AP doctors wear masks for long stretches without ill effects and that mask use among medical workers and others was normal before the pandemic and widespread harm has not been observed. Usher also said a recent report from Johns Hopkins showed 2019 and 2020 had quote, the same death rate in the U.S. The only difference is what people were classified dying from. End quote. This claim has proliferated on right-wing social media. However, it refers to a story that ran in a student publication called the Johns Hopkins Newsletter and is based on a YouTube video from someone in the Applied Economics Department. And I might add to that, uh, it has been since uh, recanted by the Johns Hopkins Newsletter and has been thoroughly shown to be absolutely without merit, um, factually and statistically without merit. And so, and, and what is more accurate is from late January to October 3rd, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates 299,028 excess deaths this year, above deaths above normal, with 100, 198,081
0: attributed to COVID-19. Yeah, and it returns to the theme. We had earlier in the show about um, how data um, used by those who don't understand it or, or using uh, principles from one field of study and applying it to an unrelated
1: one um, is absolute gibberish. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Applied Economics Department. I love that.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: So I'm afraid to ask, how are we doing on the economic front?
1: Any good news? Mm, Applied and otherwise? Uh, uh, (laughs) I I would apply this word no um, right at this moment. (laughs) Um, But we are really in a depression, um, especially for the poorer half of the population. For the wealthy, times have been rarely better. We, ha- we are faced right now with, uh, unless Congress acts, which we'll get to in a second, uh, the day after Christmas, which is a week from today, uh, that uh, unemployment, uh, uh, the extra unemployment is over um, for uh, up to 16 million workers. Um, and then um, add to this that by December or December 31st or January 1st the eviction moratorium is lifted and um, you know unless Congress acts and uh, I mean again you know we've been describing this economy as a k-shaped recovery so the people at the top make out and the people on the bottom get hammered as simple yeah. or as we we heard you know this summer it's an fu-shaped recovery meaning, People who got bailed out and enriched by the Fed's $3 trillion that it threw at the markets to inflate the prices of stocks, bonds, housing, etc. are now happy as a lark, and to heck with the rest of the people that are getting crushed. Unless Congress acts during this lame duck session, this will be and continue to be a grim winter for millions of Americans. Well, actually, I this carefully
0: and I'm more confused than
1: ever. Yeah, I mean, it's looking better than ever, but of course, they still haven't acted. <laughs> um, it looks like they may pass something, uh, which is better than nothing. Um, Congress agreed to extend discussion for a week on any stimulus and economic aid to be included on the must pass 2021 federal budget bill. If they don't pass the 2021 federal budget bill, the government shuts down, okay, so so there's leverage there, right, uh, and be, and because they still have not come to an agreement on Friday, with midnight Friday being the government shutdown date, and as of this moment, we're recording on Friday, you know, at 6.20 Montana time, uh, I, we still don't know if they've passed, you know, an extension or what's gone on there, but, uh, so this could be a little old news, but, um, According uh, So uh, there is talk about extending funding the government until next Monday so they can hammer out uh, an agreement. So what's in that stimulus package uh, that's, being under, that's being discussed? Uh, the Washington Repo- Post reported on December 18th, uh, the stimulus package under discussion would include $600 stimulus checks for millions of Americans. Uh, 10 weeks of jobless aid, $330 billion in small business assistance, money for vaccine distribution, and funding for a range of other programs. It leaves out aid to cities and states, as well as liability shield for businesses looking to, for protection from lawsuits that Republicans had insisted on. And I'll stop here. That uh, the, the city and state aid is absolutely needed no matter what. And you, you, you know how many lawsuits have been filed for uh, liability o- over COVID? It, um, can you take a guess? Okay. Uh, so far, without, without uh Well, not not probably not even a dozen. So oh, so so this is not. Good question. Yeah, this is, not, this is not a very big problem, in other words, right? Um, yeah. One obstacle to a quick extension of a, fe- a budget funding bill is Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, who told reporters Friday he will object to any stopgap unless he received assurance that direct payments to taxpayers will be included in the bill. That would likely not be a difficult task, however, because party leaders have agreed for days that stimulus checks of some sort will be included in a final package. The size of those checks, however, remain a point of dispute. Hawley on Friday went on the Senate floor to push legislation that would provide for $1,200 checks, um, like was under the CARES Act, roughly roughly double what is currently under consideration. Yet Senator Ron Johnson, Republican Libertarian from Wisconsin, argued that sending more direct aid to Americans would be a fiscally irresponsible shotgun approach. Johnson said on the Senate floor, we will not have learned the lessons from our very hurried, very rushed, very massive earlier relief packages. We're just going to do more of the same, end quote. And uh, Johnson, by the way, is one of these deficit hawks, right? He thinks that... uh, we don't balance the budget soon, um, the whole country is going to go down in the toilet. Um, but he's risking. Yeah, I'm very familiar
0: with relatives in Wisconsin. I'm very familiar with Ron Johnson, and um, it was it was sickening when um, an outstanding senator. Um,
1: his name, I can't remember. Fein- Feinstein. Yeah. Fe- thank
0: you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yep. Um, Feinstein, the fine senator. Ron Johnson. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and Ron Johnson has absolutely
0: no credentials for the job he has. His wife's father owns a company, and Ron got a job with that company and may never have done anything other than be a devoted husband.
1: Yeah. And yet he's
0: making decisions like this that affect
1: millions of people. Yep. Yeah, we got plenty of knuckleheads, and uh, you know, and you know, he's willing to risk the country really going into the toilet economically for some false understanding of how the federal budget actually works. That for another day. Um, Yeah, that is a critical topic. It is. So anyway, but uh, Senator Hawley from Missouri shot back at Johnson. Uh, you know, verbally, not uh, literally, um, that uh, lawmakers need to get their priorities straight. He said, and I like this, he said, we're getting ready to spend apparently another trillion dollars more, and yet working people are told they may be last if they get relief at all, he said. Working people are living in their cars. Working people can't go to the doctor. Working people can't pay their rent. Working people can't feed their children. They should be first, not last. End quote. If you recall, Jim, also that both Hawley and Senator Bernie Sanders threatened to derail the must-pass budget bill if there was not a $1,200 stimulus check for everyone. It was that threat that put the stimulus checks back on the table when the Senate and House leadership were ready to go without them. Yeah.
0: At least that's something. And and um, today's Amy Goodman program, Democracy Now, there was an interview with a, with a person who's directly affected. She said, um, "I need that twelve hundred dollars. If I get six hundred instead, that's the difference between having a cheap motel somewhere to stay in or having to sleep in my
1: car." Yeah. Wow yeah, that's that's that desperate for a lot of people, way too many people. Um, but if the stim, if the stimulus package is passed, even if it is passed, right, um, the overall amount proposed to be spent is almost half of what President Trump offered in October, a package that Democratic Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi rejected as too small. So if this succeeds, It will be much smaller than what would have been won before the election and all of these numbers all of these packages are far too low to be truly effective they remain just a life ring like you like you described with this woman um either (laughs) getting a a motel room or sleeping in her car yeah and that's not at the hyatt regency yeah it's not at the hyatt regency
0: I see poverty and homelessness issues in Missoula, and I ask, how can we be the richest country
1: in the world? This is madness. Yep, yep, it's madness. Yeah, but life it, ring at best, and it's uh, yeah, so life ring that's <laughs> barely buoyant. There, yeah, that's right. So, well, that's the end of our first part of our show where we don't have our usual. Um, Uh, uh, interview um, this week, but um, we are borrowing from Paul Jay off of his podcast, The Analysis.News. And this interview is with noted news media academic Robert McChesney, and the podcast is entitled The Decline of American Journalism. We hope you enjoy it. You are listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99% and you are listening to it on missoula community radio yay please contribute to missoula community radio Um, by the end of the year you will receive many great prizes and the satisfaction of knowing that you are supporting this show and other great shows on missoula community radio and how do you listen to missoula community radio well glad you asked uh, you can listen to it in the Missoula Valley and environs at 105.5 FM, uh, and that's KFGM, by the way. Or you can listen around the world uh, on podcast, or not podcast, on, um, on streaming at 1055kfgm.org, or you can listen to our show on podcast on uh, anchor.fm and searchable on any podcast. I just searched it on Apple Podcast um, under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%.
2: Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. And we have a matching grant campaign on a generous donor put up 10,000 bucks. And for every dollar you donate, it gets matched if you're a monthly donor already if you up your monthly it will get matched for 12 months if it's a new monthly that will get matched for 12 months so if you like what we do now's a good time to donate
1: Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve, serve our, our Treasure our Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News
2: produces.
1: But we, we are, are concerned, concerned about the trouble and trying to irresponsible one-sided,
2: one-sided news stories plaguing our, our country. Country. plaguing our country. In many countries, newspapers and television news and media shows... Make no pretense of being anything other than partisans of political parties. In the United States, news still postures as being more objective, but here the partisanship is to the political duopoly. The only politics that's worth covering is the horse race between the Democrats and the Republicans. The urgency of the climate crisis, the threat of nuclear war and militarization, union organizing, protests that aren't violent or enormous, the inequality gap, structural racism, unless there's a video of egregious police violence, are rarely considered newsworthy, if covered at all. The major cable news networks have lost even the pretense of impartiality, with the Fox model of throwing red meat to the base now fully adopted by CNN and MSNBC. The degeneration of political discourse is a great threat to civil rights and what's left of American democracy. And to a large extent, when it comes to the media, is driven by the enormous profits made during election campaigns. So feeding the fury and the fear of all types is just good for business. And so what can we do about it? Now joining us is Robert McChesney. He's a professor emeritus in communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's written several books on media and politics, including People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a citizenless Democracy, and Blowing the Roof Off the 21st Century, Media Politics and the Struggle for Post-Capitalist Democracy. Thanks for joining us, Bob.
3: My pleasure, Paul.
2: I was just telling Bob off camera that my, my eight-year-old daughter, when she was four, uh, was I said to read the cover of Bob's book. She was four or five, and she said, people get ready. To change your clothes instead of change the world, and then she says, "People get ready to rule the world," which I thought was was pretty good. Maybe she was inspired by the book. Uh, anyway, let's let's talk about the state of media. So, this election campaign we've just come through. Um, I, I've, Fox has been obviously uh, the business model is to support the right. Wing of the Republican Party, not just the Republican Party. Although Karl Rove and his type, uh, some of the more center-center-right Republicans, have a, a pride of place there. But on the whole, it was feeding the kind of Trump fury. Uh, CNN used to have some pretense of, of being an actual news organization. I think they can just completely dropped it now. MSNBC, I guess, was more Fox-like. Uh, I mean, what's your take on what's happened? And 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 and. What significance does it have in terms of so many people get their news from cable news?
3: Well, it's a great. You you framed it well. You know, I think the you also framed the fact that even at its best, uh, commercial journalism in the United States has had real problems. Even back in the glory days when we actually had journalism with reporters and newsrooms uh, actively covering communities, which we don't have any longer, and the problem that it had at its peak, professional journalism, commercial journalism in the United States. Has been the range of legitimate debate on political issues has always been pretty much set by people in power. So, you know, economic issues were taken, looked at from the perspective of the dominant interests in the Republican and Democratic Party, which were the dominant commercial interests in society. Foreign policy was looked at pretty much the same way by both parties. The United States was a benevolent empire and had the right to rule the world as it saw fit, and the military was a necessary part of it that wasn't really up for debate uh, in US news media uh, in the 20th century. That was just a given, certainly in the second half of the 20th century. And during that period, we had a, a, a blossoming rich, resource rich uh, journalism for much of the, many of those decades, yet still its coverage of war and peace matters of the economy tended to skew to a fairly narrow range of the sort of people who were the lead of both political parties and the elite of the economy. And that was in the glory days. Uh, those, those look like wonderful days today, when you look at what passes for journalism. Uh, and so the problem we have today is we still have the restriction to sort of elite opinion, setting the boundaries of what a legitimate story is and what an illegitimate story uh, might be. But we also now don't have the resources. And I'll tell a, a story that's not apocryphal. It's a true story, but it, it is apocryphal otherwise. Um, about 25 years ago, Um, a a little over 20 years ago, um, a guy named Rick Kaplan, who was the head of CNN at that time, and before that had been the head of MSNBC, just when it was starting, I think, uh, but he certainly was the head of CNN in the late uh, 1990s. Uh, I got to know Rick Kaplan uh, because he was an alum of the University of Illinois where I taught, and he would come every year for a week to meet with students in the journalism program, and for several years in a row, I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, talking to him during that week when he'd be on campus. And he told me a really interesting story about when he was at CNN in the late 90s. This was just when Fox News had started. And he uh, had a great year in the late 90s, like 1998, I think it was, and he was going in to meet with the CEOs at Time Warner, the parent company of CNN. And he was expecting to get patted on the back and get a big bonus and be told what a great job he was doing. And he went in for his annual meeting and the the Poobahs at Time Warner were not totally excited. And he said, well, what's the problem? I've just had the best year ever in the history of CNN. It's been a a landmark year for our network. And they said, well, look over here at this Fox News, what they're doing. Fox News, uh, they've made the same amount of uh, profits as CNN, and they've done it with far lower returns. They've managed to milk those profits out of a much lower revenue base. Why can't we get that sort of return out of our revenue base? And Kaplan said to them, and I'm paraphrasing from memory, he said, but if I do that, I'll have to get rid of all my reporters. And apparently the poo boss at uh, Time Warner basically didn't think that they, they nodded like that's not such a bad idea because how much profit that Rupert Murdoch is making with Fox News. And what that got to is the, the commercial basis of the decline of journalism, uh, why it made so much sense economically to junk the reporters, because Fox News found out if you got rid of reporters, um you'd have to offer your audience something you couldn't get rid of your reporters and then have bland associated press reports no one's going to watch your network but if you get rid of your reporters and then you tap into a section of the market that watches TV news and give them the the take on the news that will appreciate that's really inexpensive and you can build a name for yourself and that was why Fox News was as brilliant a commercial idea as it was a political idea And it was a truly brilliant commercial idea And I think what we've finally seen with CNN and MSNBC is they've adopted the same model and that the the right lane was taken, so they took the left lane, but they're still within the boundaries of sort of elite thought. There's no lane for you, Paul. There's no lane for the intercept. There's no lane for democracy now. There's no lane for the sort of investigative journalism that even our mainstream media provided in the 60s, 70s and 80s and our great newspapers where you'd see some deep, wonderful digging That doesn't exist anymore. But what we have, it's commercially driven, this journalism-free pontificating, especially on cable TV news, satisfying an audience by sort of just talking to the same talking heads, covering the same two or three stories in every cycle. I mean, you could watch MSNBC and CNN from now until the cows come home, and you'd have no idea what's happening in Latin America, none whatsoever. I'll dare say that if you watch the US news media, in the 1970s, or certainly read newspapers, you'd have a decent idea who the head of state were in all the major states, when elections were coming along, uh, what the great political issues were. Uh, I know because that's how I followed Latin American politics. And I, used, I know a lot more in the 70s than I know today by watching the media on uh, CNN and MSNBC. You'd think the world ended at our borders, basically.
2: I think there's a couple of things. One is if you watch the financial news, uh, read financial newspapers, if you, on television, radio, Bloomberg, uh, you will get more of that kind of actual journalism. You will know more about the world because the investor class, they actually do want to know this kind of stuff. But the elites have more and more come to the realization that it's, as far as the majority of the population go, goes, the more ignorant people are, the better.
3: Yes, yeah, so I, I think you're right. It, it, we see this the business press, for the people who have to invest money and have a lot writing and the outcome, they need to know what's actually happening in the world to a certain extent to protect their interest. And so you're going to find much better reporting in The Wall Street Journal or The Economist or any uh, Bloomberg than you're going to find in the conventional general news media. Uh, but it also has all the biases of the class it is pitched to. So in that world, uh, labor movements are by definition highly suspect. Uh, deregulation or pro-market reforms are, by definition, uh, enthusiastically embraced is probably a really good idea uh, if the, as long as they're implemented properly. Uh, that's just a given. That's not subject to debate, despite whatever empirical evidence there might be.
2: And, and it's not, when you get back to cable news, it's not entirely driven by the business model because, like, for example, most of the people I interview on the analysis would make superb guests on MSNBC or CNN. Uh, in fact, most of my guests are better informed than most of the guests that they're talking to already, uh, but they don't fit in with this duopoly narrative. The, the analysis goes beyond just Republican versus Democrat. But And even at that level, they have a political kind of bias and censorship. Like AOC is rock star material. If... Purely from a money-making point of view, how could you not have her on almost every day on MSNBC? But it doesn't play into the pro-corporate democratic narrative. So there's also this political bias, which sometimes even is ahead of what would make the money, because, like, for example, the fight of the progressive wing uh, versus the corporate Democrats. It's a good narrative. uh, People would want to watch that. Uh, But there's a bit of it, but not much. You're absolutely right.
3: In fact, um,
2: you can you see some, a bit
3: of a change here? When MSNBC was first cutting its teeth as a liberal network during the George W. Bush era, uh, 2001 to 2009, frequently it'd have guests on like uh, Glenn Greenwald uh, or Jeremy Scahill, and you know
2: they or Thomas Frank. Uh... Yeah,
3: they'd be doing really good uh, investigative critical work. Uh, exposing the Bush administration and its various crimes around the world, and then they were okay to be on the air. Uh, but as soon as Obama came in, when they applied the same standards that they applied to George W. Bush to Obama, that was unacceptable. They were basically ushered out the door. And and that that showed the strict line that was there in the sand of how far you could go. And your analysis is completely correct. What's, and what locks that in is that when Um, Now that Biden, you know, when Trump came into power, they did not open the door to the progressives in the in the journalism community again like they had during the Bush era. Then, to the contrary, it seemed they battened on the hatches. They they called in called up McLean, said, "Get your guys over here to explain the world to us from the CIA's perspective, because that seems to be where the smart people are." And they called in the NSA and they called in Wall Street. And basically they this basically the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, the corporate worldview was accepted as that's the proper frame of reference for journalism on this network at, at MSNBC and I think that more or less trickles to CNN pretty much the same although I will say that occasionally stuff leaks out of CNN that would never leak out anymore at MSNBC.
2: yeah but not very often
3: not very often but occasionally.
2: Yeah, I've interviewed Thomas Frank a few times. Uh he wrote a best-selling book, you know, what what's the matter with Kansas? Uh was writing in major newspapers, well-known and he's and he's also one of a good guest. Not everybody who writes successful books is good on TV, but F- Frank's good on TV. He's funny, he's, he knows stuff. He doesn't get booked by anybody anymore because he was cr- critical of the Obama administration. Yeah, I mean Paul he <laughs> The book you wrote,
3: Listen Liberal, which I'm sure you're familiar with,
2: basically yeah.
3: was yeah. a frontal assault on everything MSNBC and CNN stands for. It says basically the Democratic Party has abandoned the working class and embraced the professional class and rich people. And uh, that's a big reason why we have Trump. And that's not an argument that I think MSNBC has any interests in um, – um, recognizing is legitimate. I think that was just not going to happen. When he was back bashing, um, uh, wondering why Democrats aren't getting the votes they ought to get from in Kansas, that was okay when they're out of power. Maybe he's got some way to help them get those votes in a general election. But when he's actually writing a book that goes right after the Democrats is saying they're—it's not just the Republicans who have changed in the last forty years by moving so far to the right now that they're sort of into the fascist zone to be blunt uh, the Democrats have done the same thing they've moved significantly to the right on an issue after issue and that's part of the dance with the Republicans that puts us in the situation we're in that discussion is verboten uh on MSNBC or CNN except maybe to bring someone out if they got a bestseller to yell at them but they, they don't even recognize it it's just not allowed there uh you're going to get the same drumbeat of a few talking points Uh, that come right out of the heart of the corporate Democrat wing of the party, which is the dominant wing. It's where all the money is. And that's you're going to hear over and over and over. And um, uh, in that sense, it's not that much different from from Fox or the right-wing media in that sense. But that doesn't do justice to just how bad Fox and the right are to leave it just right there.
2: Uh, We've talked in the past about concentration of ownership. And the extent to which there's, you know, just a tiny handful of media companies owning the news, uh, but it's in the last few years, especially since so 708, since the crash, uh, there's been the emergence of these big asset managers like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard, and you and when now look at who owns the media that that owns the media. It's mostly finance. Uh, The New York Times, I believe, is 93% owned by financial institutions. Every major media company, with the exception of Bloomberg, which is privately owned, and the Washington Post that's privately owned, all the rest, institutional investors own controlling interest of those companies. Now, it doesn't mean they run them day-to-day, but they do get to choose who runs them day-to-day. And if they don't like the way it's being run— they can change the management. Finance has control over the media in a way it didn't have before. And what's important, not only in in that kind of uh, imperative on short-term return on capital invested, these same financial institutions own Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, the military industrial complex. They own, they have, in terms of owning the uh, controlling interest of shares, uh, fossil fuel companies, So so these media companies now are not just monopolies. They're integrated and part of financial monopolies that kind of own everything. You know, they had to get on the phone. They do their quarterly reports. uh, So no wonder they don't want to see the left wing of the Democratic Party showing up on television. You
3: know, that that might have some bearing for like a CNN or MSNBC or a Fox because those are the visible ideas of national news. But in a way, I, I must say, I think that that misses the point of what's happening in America today by a wide mark. That's, in the 1980s and 90s, um, I was one of the scholars who did this. There's a lot of emphasis on concentration ownership, the influence of the profit motive and ownership uh, and concentrated ownership, monopolistic markets on news. And I, it called basically for opening up more competitive markets and more public uh, funded voices to give us a better journalism. And I think it was proper analysis at the time but something has changed fundamentally, which uh, I'm going to return to over and over as long as you interview me, which is that journalism no longer is profitable. Journal- no, one can, no one's investing to do traditional journalism anywhere if they're out to make money. They might be doing it because they have a political edge they want to push. They might be doing it for this reason or that, but it's lost all its commercial value. It's no longer profitable. The capitalist class has basically abandoned journalism altogether. The only people buying up media outlets today are these hedge funds, equity funds, who are buying them to strip them for parts. They don't care about journalism. That's that's only people in the market. You can't find an investor to buy papers to do news or to buy news media to do news. So they think they're going to make a profit on their investment. And the reason for this, uh, there's a lot of reasons. It goes back 60 years that the process began uh, empirically, but it accelerated in the last 15 and 20 years, and now it's collapsed. The reason is that the economic basis for commercial journalism in the United States, uh, since for over 100 years, for 120 years, has been advertising support, providing between 60 and 100 percent of the revenues uh, that supported journalism uh, in the country. Um, All during that period, it all came from advertising. Well, in the last 15 years, advertising has left journalism. They no longer need to support a local newspaper to reach their target audience. They no longer need to use conventional news media. They can go digitally online. They found much better ways, much more cost-effective ways to target their audience and to reach it. And for that reason, there's just no market, there's no revenues there. The only thing we're left with is subscribers. But subscribers aren't going to subscribe to a newspaper which is like two pages long, as it has no ads to pay for anything. There's just not enough money coming from subscribers, so the whole market's collapsed. That's where we're at. So that explains why hell the hedge funds own what remains of news media. Uh, but the problem isn't that they're bad owners, and if we, they were nice guys, we'd have better media. The problem is the whole system's dead. They're not buying it to create journalism, and that and that's the the mark and the fact that we're even talking about MSNBC, CNN, and Fox is a sign the fact that we have no journalism. These are three stations that don't do any journalism. They basically have a bunch of people sit around and gossip about the news. They don't break any news, uh, and they talk about it. They, if you watch it, you won't have any idea what's going on for the most part in the country or the world. But you'll know what the chattering classes think is important for us to hear about, uh, depending on your perspective, on sort of political spin. And you know that's not journalism, and they don't. You know, To the extent you see journalism on CNN or MSNBC, more often than not, they call in a reporter from the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, three of the remaining newsrooms that cover national politics left in this country who are actually covering stuff. And that's not very many people covering a huge country of 330 million people, it's absurd. Uh, We have no journalism left at the local level in this country, what what remains is uh, virtually extinct at this point. It's on the verge of extinction.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure we're, we're disagreeing. No, I,
3: I, I'm, I'm just framing it yeah. because the traditional idea is, well, you, you you get more owners, more different companies producing it, and you get better results. You'll have more competition. You'll get uh, new ideas in that wouldn't have been, new stories will get covered that wouldn't be covered before. Well, in a, if, and you're assuming the marketplace will encourage that if there's a lot of different owners and participants. There's no marketplace anymore. I mean, that's the point. There's no no one starting up new media successfully. No one's, no investors trying to anymore. They they understand it. They've gotten the memo. If you want to lose your money, invest in journalism. Get out. So you know when when Bezos bought the Washington Post, I forget the price he paid for it, but he probably paid one tenth of what he would have had to pay for it a decade earlier. I mean, it has no value. And he bought it not to make money, it's a vanity buy so he can influence politics and push his agenda. It's not just this is a great investment. It's a crappy investment. It's the worst investment in his portfolio, no doubt. Uh, but it's the best investment to have political influence, which will protect his portfolio. Then it's a real winner.
2: Now, the New York Times does seem to be a bit of a, with an exception to the rule. Yeah. Uh, they are making money, aren't they? And, and there are a lot of journalists working there. The
3: New York Times has become the national newsroom now. It is the only room, national place that has a newsroom that covers national politics seriously and has a staff that does it. And for that reason, it's a national newspaper, and it has subscribers all over the country. It's the only place you can go. So there's room for one paper. There's there's room for one newspaper that can make money nationally, do what the New York Times does. Doesn't seem like there's room for much more than that. Certainly, if it's general news, not just business news or news on specific areas, sports news. Um, And yeah, so we're down to one. But you know what we had 30 years ago in the United States or 40 years ago by comparison? There were probably a dozen major American newspapers that not only had big Washington bureaus, they had bureaus in London and Paris and Moscow uh, in South America. They were covering the world. You actually saw international news, which doesn't exist anymore. You have, ironically, in the global age. Uh, So there's one newsroom left. And to some extent, the Washington Post will cover domestic politics. champions the stuff in Washington, and the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal does some good reporting still. Uh, but the rest of it, it's mostly just gossip. Now, there are some great reporters, don't get me wrong, um, and you're one of them. There are some great reporters covering stuff, but it's not in that world. It's it's on the margins, it's on the fringes, it's being supported through like you have to do, try to find people to support you, willing to give you money because so they understand the importance of the work. Uh, but there's not enough money out there, even if you find rich people to give you money to backroll the sort of resources we need to cover Baltimore, Maryland, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or anywhere else in the country. That's the great crisis we face, not to mention the national news.
2: Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, the thing about this concentration of ownership, that, that I was saying is that the, the interest of finance is now so directly involved in the media that even though the New York Times is, what well, I, I don't think there's any parallel to it in the United States in terms of a, a functioning international and national newsroom, uh, the, uh, the the boundaries of where they're willing to go are still within the realm of, these, of one, the, the, the duopoly in terms of uh politics it's still about republicans versus democrats but even on other issues like i was looking i've been preoccupied with blackrock this big asset management company it's was seven trillion dollars under the control and uh between them and and state street and vanguard and some of the other smaller ones they they vote the shares that control something like 95 percent of the s&p 500 Uh, but when I tried to find stories about BlackRock that really are revealing, the place I really found them was on Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. Well, Bloomberg's privately owned. Yeah. Uh, where the New York Times is owned by BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, and the other institutional investors. Uh, so there's a kind of a... Uh, people get to know, I guess they know where, where their bread is buttered. Uh, so so, I, I, so in no way am I disagreeing with What's, how the market for journalism has collapsed. I'm just saying it's even it's even gotten worse than that yeah. because the ownership is so intertwined now that the same people that uh, write about nuclear weapons and nuclear war strategy, the same ownership owns the comp- the twelve companies that make nuclear weapons.
3: So it reinforces the problems to begin with, and then some.
2: So l- let's talk about. The sort of interconnection between how to change this. Now it, it, to really change it, we're going to need a breakthrough politically, at least at some state levels because this donor model we haven't seen anything with the donor model get to scale. Even Intercept, which has some serious money from Pierre Amitier and does good investigative journalism and does get reference in the mainstream press uh, I guess maybe Democracy Now's the, the most successful based on foundation and donor model. But the vast majority of Americans have never heard of democracy now. Uh, so it's going to be connected to the issue of a breakthrough politically, uh, at nationally, at state levels, because there needs to be some really serious public money put into this idea of, 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 of a real democratic media. And that's a political problem because it, just the private donation problem, uh, it's just not going to be enough. Like you could imagine a state, especially a bigger state like California, say, could put up real funding uh, for independent media if they would have the political guts to do it. Uh, but anyway, well, how do you imagine this changing? Well, um, I think I, I'm i open
3: minded. I think uh, we have to be, see what throw a lot of ideas out there, work in them, and see what develops. I don't think there's one plan that will solve it necessarily, although there are some things we know for sure. What most Americans don't realize is that um, the First Amendment to our Constitution, as Justice Potter Stewart put it, uh, is a structural demand uh, on the government to make sure there is a, a press system, there is an independent, free press. Uh, it's not just the don't censor the press. You've got to have a press that exists uh, that can't be censored. And so it's it's two parts to the, our, our free press tradition. The first, the first part I talked about, that there actually be a free, independent free press, was forgotten by the time the commercial media came along in the 20th century, and these huge giants. It assumed the market would always produce it. That was never a problem. Uh, you'd always have this huge news media. And the only thing you worried about was the government censoring it. Well, in fact, at the time of the American Revolution, there was no guarantee you'd have a press system. It required massive public subsidies to have a press system. We had enormous public subsidies. Uh, The primary one was the post office, which was created basically to be the free distribution arm of every American newspaper or at a nominal expense for the first hundred years of American history, which made it possible for to have this plethora of diverse views of newspapers, which are foundational to our political democracy, the best parts of our democracy. There wasn't a single social movement of value from abolitionist movement to the suffragette movement, labor movement, all the rights to expand the franchise that weren't led by editors, They weren't led by news media. The media was the center of democracy, and those media only survived because they were supported by the post office, getting free distribution or really inexpensive postage that covered all their distribution costs. And so we, that's our American tradition. We have this rich tradition of understanding the exact problem you outlined, that you need a news media to have a functioning democracy, and we can't bank on the market. And we're in a situation now where the market clearly has given up, it's failed. We are in a, this is a public good, news media. It's something society desperately needs, but the market won't produce in sufficient quality or quantity. And so I think it's gotta be, if we want understand that, then say, okay, how do we solve that? How do we get the great political problem how do you get sufficient public funds to support independent uncensored news media but not let the government control who gets the money and how it's used that's the problem is it solvable well the postal subsidy solved it the postal subsidy everyone got it who was a newspaper they didn't care what your politics were and in fact the reason why we know it was such an extraordinarily successful policy is that the first great scandal with uh, the post office still newspapers came in the Antebellum period when Southern postmasters refused to carry abolitionist newspapers. And that was considered such an outrage in the North. It was one of the main uh, factors that drove Northern anger at the South and hatred of slavery, that it would take away democracy if you couldn't even talk about uh, slavery or abolition. And uh, the other, there's only been another handful of other incidents in which you have the government, uh, the post office and try censorship that were always criticized. In fact, during World War One, the last great moment when anti-war tracks were censored, the, what the U.S. government did during World War I was so outrageous that it led to all the great First Amendment decisions the Supreme Court made that we live with today came on the heels of World War I, and a lot of that came from the censorship of the post office of anti-war material being considered just obscene by most Americans. So we have this rich history of solving that problem successfully. Now we've got to come, how do we do it in the digital age? How do we do it in an era in which you don't need ink and newspapers? In an era in which you want to have local media and local media disappears in the digital era, because once you go digital, localness means nothing. For you to do it, your program, Paul, even if you want to do just um, Baltimore, Maryland, when you put it online, it's seen as easily by someone in China as it is in Baltimore, Maryland. And so you basically have an international audience automatically, it localism is stripped out of the technology. And for that reason we've got to come up with a way to have local media that covers communities that draws people together independent competitive media that's functional and accountable and can it be solved well i think it can uh and i've worked for years with a number of people and and not just the united states but in canada and and in europe um on plans to do it we think basically it should be a publicly funded uh budget that basic people in local communities would vote for whichever nonprofit media they wanted every year to get it, uh, and you'd have so, you know, if it's two hundred dollars per person, it would mean you do it at the county level because then uh, counties are sort of the core unit, and you everyone in a county could vote for how you would allocate the budget for that, and you pick a few, and then everyone who gets over three percent of the vote qualifies, and they get however many votes they get that amount of money, and you have it every year, so it's competitive, so no one gets to just lock in a position and ignore the public, uh, but something like that, uh, starting with that principle. Now, maybe it could be done at the state level first, but I think we ought to really think nationally. I I guess we're at a point now where you look at the information level of American politics today compared to what it was even in the Reagan era, um, and it's frightening. There's no other word for it. It's utterly frightening to see Qanon, to see uh, this other stuff that's being widely circulated is you know legitimate. Uh, there's no the reason for that is there's nothing conspiracy theories the only theories trying to make sense of the world. <laughs> there's no, no one else is trying to explain how do you understand the world. You don't have a journalism. We've got to get journalism back in communities explaining the world to people in competitive groups. So it's not just one voice but multiple voices.
2: And and one, this voting model, there's uh, models of it that already exist in Europe. In Scandinavia, I believe there are some countries where they have actual votes and elections, and based on who wins, they have three, four channels that get apportioned with resources that go with those channels. In the United States, there is a kind of structure that kind of exists that could be built on, which is these uh, community cable channels where cable companies have had to open up channels uh, in order to get cities, as part of their obligation to cities, to put up their cable lines, but they're completely under-resourced. They're, the idea that cable companies had to pay money so these uh, channels could function has been so whittled away that most of these cable channels, outside of a city like you know Manhattan or something, maybe in some of San Francisco, most of them have very little resources. But there actually is cable space. There is channels that exist that, if they were really resourced, and they have a bit of democratic uh, uh, structure to them now because at least the, I believe some are voted on by communities who runs these cable channels, uh, not cable channels, community channels. Anyway, yeah. th- there's sort of an infrastructure that, that at least there's something there to be built on. I think the national politics is just so screwed up right now, but maybe at a state level there, or a city level even, there could be some breakthroughs. You're, you might be
3: right. I'm, I'm open-minded. I'm not, I don't want to stop any city or state from pursuing something like this. Uh, but at the same time, I do think it's time to, every time someone talks about media, that we inject this conversation at the beginning. Because unless we get the resources to have an independent, uncensored news media that's actually covering this, our communities, um, unless we get that right in the middle of everything, all, everything else we're doing that we think is about democracy is pretty much irrelevant. I mean, if we we need to have we, this is this is a, sort of the foundation of democratic theory, not just in this country but globally. You've got to have some semblance of a credible, independent press. We don't have one anymore, uh, and uh, so I'm fine for however we want to do it. But I but I'm, I th- that's probably why I answered your question about media ownership the way I did. That we've got a bigger problem than just who owns the media. That's not that that isn't a problem. We, we, have need, we don't have media to be owned. I mean, we don't have the resources there that are being done doing the job. If you live in a city, most American cities now, or communities, or counties, the term that we've invented in the last 30, I'll, I'll let you a, a preface this. In the 1970s, there was no term for homelessness, that, because homelessness didn't exist, really. Uh, by the 1980s, it was commonplaces. We had millions of people who couldn't afford housing. Um, And now we've got a new term that's come that's never existed in America before, that has become a fastest growing concept in journalism, it's called the news desert. These are places in America where there are no reporters covering a community, none, zero, nunca. Uh, And no newsroom, certainly. And if you expand news deserts to mean like you have to have a minimum number of reporters per 100,000 people, a wide portion of this country is now a news desert, where there's no really any credible journalism covering your state, your community. And you know the difference for anyone our age, Paul, um, from what that meant growing up, no matter even the problems of their journalism, but it used to be if you read your local newspaper and listened to the AM news, you'd have a pretty reasonable idea of what was going on in your community. You have a baseline. There's none of that today. Most people can't mention they don't have any clue what's going on in their city or their community. And that's what happens. And boy, you just really can't, the system's not gonna work very well um, as long as that's the case. In fact, we're seeing the results now. It makes possible uh, someone just like Donald Trump. And it's not an error that the far right in this country, the Breitbarts of the world, the Mercers, uh, the Bannons revel in the collapse of journalism. They revel in the idea that they can basically control now the narrative and not have really, a voice they have to contend with, they can just dismiss it as baloney as fake news. Um, this is a serious
2: issue. And nothing more serious than the lack of coverage of the climate crisis.'re yeah. we're, we're within we're within at the moment right now, even if there's a certain amount of action by the Biden administration. But some leading scientists uh, from the IPCC a couple of years ago had a report that if every country that signed the Paris Accords fulfilled all of their commitments at the Paris Accords, we would still hit two degrees warming above industrial, pre-industrial average by 2050, if they all fully achieved their commitments. Well, the science is getting pretty clear now that if you hit two degrees, You have an effect called runaway. In fact, I have an interview I'm publishing in the next couple of days with a climate scientist. Runaway is, for example, more forest fires, more carbon emission from the fires, more melting of the Arctic, more methane released. You start getting this runaway effect that after you hit two degrees warming, it gets difficult to impossible to not hit three and then four, and you essentially have an unlivable planet. How is that not the most compelling story, night after night after night? So it's it's not just a politics story. It's, it's
3: an extraordinary story. And obviously, going back to where we, the point of departure for this interview, uh, the framework for American journalism is sort of what elites consider relevant issues and what they're debating. And this clearly is not especially relevant issue for the elites of this country. Uh, because they're not encouraging this debate whatsoever. Their politicians aren't encouraging it. They're not paying for politicians to encourage it, and we're living with the consequences. And theoretically, uh, in a a democratic society, even if the people who run the country don't want to talk about it, there's a news media that's focused on the issues that aren't always going to be popular with people in power, and that's what a free press is for, and they would be doing exactly this. They would be beating the drum on this issue, publishing the work, Talking to people, talking to activists is what they're doing. So, if you live in a community, you'd know what people are doing in your community on this issue. Right now, most Americans are living in a closet, so to speak, with the light off, because they have no idea what's going on in their community. There might be lots of people actively organizing this. They'll have no idea. They'll have no idea why it's a big deal. They're clueless. And it's not their fault. I mean, you say, well, they should know. Well, how are you supposed to know about something if you never tasted
2: it? And 74 million people just voted.
3: And that's not the only issue. I mean, there's there's a bunch of related issues right up there. Uh, issues of war and peace, uh, which are also potentially catastrophic for our species, are completely off limits in our commercial news media and our mainstream news media, NPR as well. Uh, you know, the range of debate is, uh, to paraphrase Jeff Cohen's great line, it's from GE to GM. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> although I must say, the Republicans have, you know, they've, Brought in this new fascist element, which is really their their special contribution of the last decade, uh, where you know the range of it used to be like narrowly between sort of a corporate liberal viewpoint on foreign policy. Now we've edged into the isolationist, you know, racist, uh, screw the rule of law. I mean, just dark underbelly of uh, neoliberalism. And so that's our range of debate now is like, well, those are your two choices. It's 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 no choice at all.
2: All right. Thanks for joining us, Bob. My
3: pleasure, Paul.
2: And thank you for joining us on the Analysis.News podcast. And I, I hope Bob will be back often in the future. And don't forget, we have a fundraising campaign on now. Uh, go to the website. It explains everything. But it's a matching grant campaign. And if you donate, it's going to get matched. So thanks for joining us on the Analysis.news podcast.
1: Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, You are listening to KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio. And for the last part of our show, which is Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%, um, we have yet another story in a series from Latin America. So, uh, Jim, could you tell us what you have found this week?
0: events like an election or a coup have happened in the last seven days but uh, the uh, no resolution of problems um, the, there is a um, there continues to be a um, farm worker strike and um, I, I can't, you're going to have to coach me here
1: because I can't yeah, that yeah that 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 farm the farmers and farm workers strike in uh, Peru, right, or Ecuador? Exa- yes, thank you. Yeah. And um, because
0: there are similar events going in Chile, where the mine workers have been striking with the farm workers, who have been blocking off roads to make it an issue to the urban dwellers of how of how desperate their circumstances are. Um, Venezuela's continues to get a lot of attention. Uh, nothing new has happened, but the Gaido, um, it, you know, Im, Im, imposter in the throne attempt that was uh, lionized by the, our president in January in a State of the Union address um, has become even more farcical. And, he didn't even get his seat back, which he only had for one term. So he's he's out of the government, and um, Maduro is consolidating. And who knows what the future can bring. We talked about this at length last,
1: last week. Yeah. Yeah. And Peru continues to struggle. And
0: I have a hard time capturing the complexity and the nuances of what a mess Peru is. But... Um, the best resource I have found for our loyal and faithful listeners is not is some, something as prosaic as Fromer's travel guide. And, um, they're, and they do a capsule summary of Peruvian history for the last couple of decades. It's out of this world. Hmm. And um, Peru is absolutely devastated. <laughs> you know, it's the president of the week lately. Well, our essay, uh, uh I have not heard it is it has new threats or new or or new forces trying to move him out, in, you know, out of the center. But time will
1: tell. And it, and it's so you know some background. I mean, for for decades, if not centuries. That, uh, uh Latin America has been the colony of the United States in many ways and of other countries too but uh, principally lately of of the US and has been you know uh, adopted various forms of neoliberalism to run their economy their political economy and uh, and in this is what's devastated most of these countries just the, the extraction of wealth yeah, that's, by that's international
0: banking has um, been a bunch of brigands and gangsters and uh, co- it, it um, offered the only option for uh, unstable and undercapitalized societies to move
1: forward and get back up on their feet. Doesn't work at all. Yeah. I think it, it's, this is a different continent, but it tells the Yeah. Was under Obama, right?
0: It certainly was. And our, um, I'm sketchy on details here, but I think
1: it was Hillary Clinton. Yes. You know, who was the prime motivator to get to um,
0: you know invent a way to get Gaddafi out of the picture?
1: Yes. yep yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, uh, she, she was. I, I, um, she was Secretary of State at the time. So yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, you know, speaking which, you know, there's this high level, high government, you know, dealing with the U.S. and the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, Mm -hmm. um, which were, you know, were intended to be forces for good at one point, have turned into forces of repression. Um, And if economic unfreedom, right, for a lot of these countries um, and people fight back. Right. So like in in Peru, um, you know, there was a uh, you know, there there were farm workers fighting for higher wages and better working conditions. And they had they blockaded roads in Peru trying to keep, you know, trying to make their um, their desperate, desperate cries you know. Uh, uh, you yeah, know. thank you for refreshing my memory, Mark. It, and now
0: it comes to mind: it was the Pan American Highway that they were blockading,
1: yeah. into
0: uh, and out of uh, Lima.
1: Yep, and it. Par- so, yeah, critical piece of information. Thanks for re- right. refreshing me. And so, in this strike, the workers, you know, they they paralyzed or partially paralyzed the means of production of things like. And I'm reading from an article in the Militant um, in December here um, that, uh, and I've read this elsewhere too. But they uh, paralyze production of grapes, tangerines, blueberries, avocados, and asparagus. Right, a lot of which are heading to to our grocery store, uh, uh, you know, in our, in Missoula and elsewhere. Um, Especially asparagus. They practically own that business. Yeah. Yep. And so what? One of the things that that, um, that that strike was able to do, according to this article, was to uh, repeal the anti-labor agrarian, the so-called agrarian promotion law. And so that was a big victory. So, And that agrarian law was passed in 2000 to benefit big agribusiness. Um, and uh, last year in December, the Peruvian government extended it until 2031. So under the law, farm bosses can keep workers as temporary employees indefinitely. So kind of it, it's very similar to uh, here, like Uber drivers, right? And, um, yeah. and and other misclassified, you know, construction workers, for instance, who are classified as independent contractors, and they can be on the hook without benefits, uh, and, uh, you know, employer provided benefits forever, pretty much. Um, and so, and so these farm, these farm workers in Peru won, you know, won the day. They, um, uh, they got the, the, the law repealed. And, um, and then also it reinstates overtime pay requirements and that it reinstates the minimum wage and, uh, and things like that. So it was really a matter of classification. So they, The farm workers in Peru were able to break back a law which in just, you know, a month ago, a very similar law was passed in California, uh, making Uber drivers, uh, you know, all these, you know, precarious workers uh, classified as independent contractors.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, it shows the power of being organized. When the mind, when the uh, when the unemployed mine workers combined with the uh, um, exploited farm workers got together, it was a critical mass that forced the administration to do something about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Almost like general strike, our theme
1: from a couple of weeks ago. That's right. That's right. Well, um, anything else you want to say, Jim, before we sign off here? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this, I um,
0: the Peruvians in, on the east side have you know have an ethnic history and um, cultural history similar to the you know Amazonian region in Brazil, mm-hmm. and
1: I noted here that. And, from the wonderful Fomer's article, which is a great abstract. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: should, I should have just read it aloud, but it was far too long. That they, um, they worshipped Pachamama, mm. who I thought was exclusive to Brazil.
1: Or Bolivia. And this was a real
0: thing among conservative Catholics, and they were giving a hard time to Pope Francis for... For engaging the indigenous cultures and the and the rituals and sacraments of of the of indig- of the of the, re- of the less developed or less westernized regions.
1: Right. Right.
0: And seems yeah. And it was very confused. It was strident and stupid, which is something you know. That's, that's a formidable combination. You see,
1: coming from. <laughs> The uh,
3: low-information voters on the right,
1: yeah, and it just smacked of Steve Bannon kind of thing, of where
0: you you um, you try to leverage an issue and make fun of somebody that has authority that you're resentful of. So it's I see it uh, as a um, as an effort that, that ties together a whole bunch of disparate things. And causes people to misunderstand them before they ever even know it's a thing. Right, right. And as long as we were talking, and you know, and it ties in with the theme we started the show with. Yeah. That uh, people believe the strangest things about important concepts of the, about humanity and how we should treat each other. Right. Freedom. you don't need Jazz Joplin singing about it
1: <laughs> <laughs> well you know um, in, in in the uh, the worship of what, Pacho Mama was that what you said okay. yes um, I know it sounds like in, in the inner city it's a bad word but no <laughs> like Pacho Mama um, but that's the same um, so if you recall when Abel Morales who was the uh, uh, elected yes. socialist president of Bolivia yeah thank you for and when, and when he was overthrown about a year ago, it's been about a year, um, right. that, uh, because he allowed the freedom of religion of, of the in, indigenous religions and, right. um, and was, uh, you know, and he was very much, um, he, maybe he's a practitioner, I don't know, but, um, uh, but at least he was, he allowed that freedom when the coup, um, leaders, you know kicked him threatened him and drove him out of the country um with the backing of the u.s government of course um that the uh that one of the first things that the coup leaders did was to say that we're not we're not worshiping any indigenous gods anymore we're putting the the christian bible first and foremost and uh yeah and that brings
0: Church and social development in the Western Hemisphere, you know, south of the Rio Grande River, seemed to be inextricably wedded and lashed together. And um, the churches represented power and legitimacy and authority, you know, kind of like how the you know, churches in the South were, you know, specifically set up for black communities. So they'd be getting the right passages out of the
1: Bible to be comfortable in their enslavement. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's
0: it, it, it. Touches on some really complicated topics, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought Evo Morales up and his and his
1: endorsement of the animistic religious um, you mm-hmm. know traditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he uh, basically he said, "Well, people should be free to worship how they want." and yeah freedom and he, again right and so he was the socialist advocating for freedom of religion just thought that was a kind of ironic note but, uh, yeah and you know I, I've had lengthy
0: discussions on this topic with lots of religious leaders and um, the what we know about socialism Marxism collectivism being godless is a
1: bunch of hooey <laughs> and it, it was just yeah. uh, you, you know it's revisionist history right well we're, the motivations of the founders of you know
0: what was so effectively used against Democrats in the last election using the s word
1: right right um,
0: totally misrepresented and they wanted to empower and ennoble
1: people right yep and and you know um, not always successful, but that's the intention right That's the intention of mm-hmm. you know, but we're gonna to have to leave it at that, Jim. Thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, it was it was a good show. And um, by the way, um, uh, next week we are gonna run a repeat show because it's Christmas Day and Merry Christmas, Jim. And um, and uh, thank you. happy holidays to you and your family and and to all of our listeners out there. Happy holidays, whatever whatever you celebrate, even if you don't celebrate. Uh, I hope it's a it's a good time um, for you and um, you have been listening to voice of the people radio by and for the 99% on KFGM 105.5 FM Missoula Community Radio and 105.5 kfgm.org streaming and on anchor.fm You can find our podcasts uh, under Voice of the People, Radio By and For the 99%. Please stay tuned for Jonathan Tassini and Working Life.
4: It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst It's here the family's broken and it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open in a fundamental way Democracy is coming to the U.S.A.